today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. Open our hearts, change us from within by the open word. Give us ears to hear your truth and eyes to see the needs around us as we draw. got one of those touch lamps beside me and I can touch that lamp twice and oh that's quite a bit of light I think wow that's that's good light I can see but it's not until I turn that overhead light on and all of a sudden boom the brilliance of that's like whoa okay now it's bright I mean we're we're up at like 5 30 or 6 in the morning so it's still dark outside so that brightness comes that is nothing compared to what would happen if you can just imagine this in a completely, completely dark, dark situation. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. And suddenly someone would go in and tear open the curtains. Have you ever turned a flashlight on during the brightness of the day and it seems useless? On the contrary, have you ever had a flashlight shine in your eyes when it's really dark outside? It seems ultra bright, doesn't it? Pastor David is likening this to the light of the world. Jesus is that brilliant light that shines in the darkest place. Our world grows darker with each generation. Good is called evil, and evil is called good. Praise God that he doesn't decide our eternal fate based on those around us. Well, let's join Pastor David in the book of Revelation chapter 1 with today's edition of The Open Word. Behold, a certain man, clothed in linen, whose waist was girded with gold of Uphaz, his body like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like torches of fire, his arms and feet like burnished bronze and color in color, and the sound of his words like the voice of a multitude. We see these, again, these declarations as God is showing either through an angelic visitation or literally through, through the revelation of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, very similar kinds of things. As man now tries to write down for you and I to be able to read and understand what they see in a heavenly realm. And I cannot imagine because it's not what we see. It's not from our realm. It's, again, eternal it's glorious. It's, it's wonderful. And they're writing these things down. But we see these kinds of similarities that are going, man, their voices like big thunders. Their voices like the multitude. Just that, it just overwhelms everything. The, the, the head, white like wool, white like snow. These long flowing garments, just the beauty and the power of it. All of these things that they're trying to describe so that you and I can get just a little glimpse of heaven so that you and I could hopefully get our eyes a little bit off of all the glitter and the glamour, and what do they call it? The bling of this life, and see that there's something much, much greater. Ezekiel says, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory, the very presence of God in his creation. Let's get back to Revelation there 
in verse 16. John says, He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Seven stars, again, we'll explain in a moment. But this idea of the sword coming out of his mouth, sword, the word of God, a double-edged sword sharper than any, or the word of God sharper than any double-edged sword. And here it is being, again, declared and proclaimed as coming out of him. He says, again, there in verse 16, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. Why out of his mouth? Because it's the word of God, the word of God. And what does it say? The word of God, sharper than any two-edged sword. The word of God made flesh, we read in John's gospel. All of these things coming. And we see the same vision, but every time we see it, This vision deals with an area or direction toward judgment. Judgment. That sharp two-edged sword that's coming out of the mouth is a sword of judgment. In Revelation 2, 12, says, To the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things said he who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's going to go and speak to them. In 2, 16, he says, Repent. Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. In Revelation 19, one of my favorite chapters in all of Revelation, because again, just shows Christ coming in, man, powerful and mighty with the very hosts of heaven. But in that passage there in Revelation 19, verse 15, he says, now out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword that with it he should smite the nations or strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of almighty god that sword that comes out of his mouth the word of god becomes the very judgment basis of all of humanity it's not how many good works how many of this i've done how many of that i've done but it's through the word of god where do you fall in that A little bit later, still in Revelation 19, verse 21, it says, And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all of the birds were filled with their flesh. How many times do we hear, but God is a God of love? Surely God would not do this to humanity. Well, the word of God says that he will. How many of you got a chance to see the Bill Nye Ken Ham uh, debate last night? Anybody? Wow, you missed a really good thing. Now, I, I say a really good thing. Uh, at the end of the debate, if you are a, a believer in creationism, you'll still be a believer in creationism. If you're a believer in evolution, you'll probably still be a believer in evolutionism. But there were some good things that were spoken through all of this. And one of the things that I do appreciate is Kim Ham just over and over gave the gospel, over and over gave the gospel. It's kind of like, okay, we're, we're on this debate thing, but you know, again, this Jesus Christ that, that died for the sin of mankind. And, and Bill Nye's argument was, I mean, how do you expect me to believe that there is a God who would allow all these people to perish? That's, that's just, you know, I cannot even imagine that. Why? Because Bill Nye is a man. He's not a God. He has no concept of the reality of a holy and a righteous God. If there really and truly is a holy and a righteous God who 
as the word is declared, he has revealed himself in multiple ways through his creation and through the word in all kinds of ways. And you can come and you can argue with me. Oh, but what about, uh, you know, the, the, the natives down in, you know, South Africa? What about this? What about that? The interesting thing is, is that God has revealed himself in such a way that even today, the stories of missionaries going down and people worshiping They may not know his name, but they don't worship a pagan god. They are worshiping a god of creation, the one who held them all together. They're not totally ignorant of those things. Jesus Christ died in order that the world might come to faith in him. How God is going to work all that out, you know what? I'm too small, I'm too limited to be able to understand that. I'll just throw that out there right now. I don't understand it all. But my God is much, much greater than anything that I can understand. I have a responsibility to live my life and to declare whenever and wherever I can the truth and the hope of the gospel. The rest is God's, okay? And I'm, uh, again, um, am I concerned about those? Absolutely. And that's why, again, we, we send out missionaries and have for years and years and years. And, again, we could get into that big time, but when we get into, again, the judgment of the nations, we may touch on that a little bit more. All of this going back to say that out of his mouth went that sharp, two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in strength. Again, all of the brightness, all of the brilliance, another way speaking of his purity, of his holiness that's standing there. John wants to make sure that we understand how overwhelmingly powerful this vision is. At our house, usually when we sleep at our house, we make it pretty dark. In the morning, I've got one of those touch lamps beside me, and I can touch that lamp twice, and oh, that's quite a bit of light. And I think, wow, that's, that's good light. I can see. But it's not until I turn that overhead light on and all of a sudden, boom, the brilliance of that. It's like, whoa, okay, now it's bright. I mean, we're, we're up at like 5.30 or 6 in the morning, so it's still dark outside, so that brightness comes. That is nothing compared to what would happen if you can just imagine this in a completely, completely dark, dark situation. You cannot see your hand in front of your face, and suddenly someone would go in and tear open the curtains, and it's midday here in Arizona. Perhaps even the sun shining right into that window. Can you imagine the brilliance and, and just uh, your, your eyes? You wouldn't even be able to focus for a while. This is the thought that I get when, when John is here before the Lord, the brilliance, the, the brightness of all of that, because in verse 17 says that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand on me, saying, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives, was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. The overwhelming presence of Christ. John was a guy who loved the Lord, who had served the Lord. Not too unlike, again, uh, uh, Isaiah in chapter 6, when there he was in the Lord and the, beheld the Lord and the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Uh, and he says, man, I, I'm undone. I'm, I'm a dead man. And these are guys that are serving the Lord, hearing from the Lord. The Lord is ministering in and through them. And yet even at that, they're overwhelmed by the brightness, by the glory, by the majesty of Almighty God. 
I love the care and the concern that Jesus has on John here. He comes and he says with his right hand on me, don't be afraid. I'm the eternal one. I don't know for sure. I believe just because when you read other John's other writings, the comprehension that he has of Jesus being the eternal one. But I guarantee you that day while he was in the spirit, if there was ever any doubt, it got cleared up in a moment, in a moment. He says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Even that very phrase, I am, taken all the way back from the book, uh, again, as the Lord speaks and says, I am, tell them I am, as he speaks to Moses there in the book of Exodus. Again, the fullness and the completeness of all that God is. A clear declaration of the identity of Christ standing before John, Jesus showing these things to John, but it's interesting, it wasn't for John's eyes only. Jesus tells him to write it down, to make it known, about let everyone know what he's about to see. And it appears through all of this that it's going to be broken down into like three separate time frames. What does he say there in verse 19? He says uh, in verse 19, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And it seems to be a very clear implication that one of them is of the past, the things that you've seen, what's already gone by. Then the things of the present, the the things which are, and the things that will be in the future, the things which will take place after this. And that actually becomes pretty much the very, very powerful outline for the entire book of Revelation. What we'll see as we go through this book is that John is about to write about the experience which took place, the the past. We see that in chapter 1. That's already past. Then he will write that current message to these seven churches. And we're going to see that in chapters 2 and 3. Then the remainder of the book is going to be that prophetic message about the events that have yet to take place, the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the the judgment of the world, the, the binding of Satan, the thousand-year reigning and ruling, then that last and final battle, then that final destruction of everything and a new heaven and a new earth. And all future beyond that. All of that's going to be contained in chapters 5 through 22. So again, he gives him that outline saying again, write these things which you've seen, things which are, the things which will take place after this. And then verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So here we have Jesus giving the interpretation of at least a portion of the vision that he's given to John. Now, I love it when Jesus gives his own interpretation because that pretty well settles it, doesn't it? You know, what is this? I don't know. I think maybe it's this or maybe it's that. Jesus says, no, it's this. Yeah, but maybe it's no. Jesus says it's this. So there should be no argument for it. Pretty done deal. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. The seven lampstands are 
the seven churches. They're symbolic for the seven churches. That clears it up pretty much, doesn't it? Not really. There's still some questions you ought to have. What are the angels of the churches? Are they guardian angels of the churches? Do we have a guardian angel over our church? Does every church? What about every home group? Does it have an angel? But, you know, uh, is it a denominational angel? Is it, uh, you know, how, how does that work? I mean, is that, what are you saying? The word that's translated as angels, okay, comes from the Greek word angelos, angelos. And that can be translated as angels. It can be translated as messengers. And it's also translated as pastors, all three of those. So as he's saying, again, the, the seven stars are the pastors of those seven churches. Because when you look at the message uh, to these, he says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. Who's he writing to? Is he writing to an angel or is he writing to the leadership of that church and saying, hey, I've seen you guys and this is what I have against you. This is where you need to get this thing straightened out. Is it to an angelic being or is it to an individual? Again, neither one of these, when we, when we look, whether he's speaking to an angel or a, 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 a shepherd over the church, again, we, we'll look at that and we'll see uh, it's not a, a big issue at all. But again, we need to look at it and see, okay, this is where we're seeing these symbolic things that sometimes they're very clear, sometimes they're not going to be very clear. Sometimes, because I've listened to a lot of teachings on Revelations, read several books on these, and you can almost get different interpretations of some of the symbolic things depending upon what author you have. There's a lot of things that we're going to come through here. I'm going to give you my interpretation of it. But for many, there's going to be many areas that I'm going to say, but that's not necessarily a hill I'm willing to die on, okay? Uh, because there are going to be some things that, let's just face it, they are subject to interpretation. Having said that, there is also going to be a lot of things that I believe that are, in, that are interpreted absolutely wrong. And there are some hills that I will be willing to die on. Because I believe when the truth is the truth, and when it affects the message, we need to be careful for it. So anyway, neither case is a change for any kind of a, or a, a, a need for a change in the understanding of what's been written for that particular message to any one of the churches. The reference to the churches themselves. Again, there's a lot of ideas. There's a lot of conjectures of the understanding as, number one, the number of the churches. There were seven churches. Seven being the, the number of perfection, the number of completeness. Tyndall Bible Dictionary uh, puts it this way, that in Scripture, seven symbolizes that completeness or perfection because we see on the seventh day, God rested from his labors and, uh, again, creation was finished. Uh, Pharaoh, in his dream, if you'll remember, saw seven cattle coming from the Nile in Genesis 41. Uh, in Judges 16, Samson's uh, sacred his little Nazarite locks, they were braided in seven plates. Uh, in Luke 8, seven devils left Mary Magdalene. Uh, again, the, just the totality of her possession by demonic spirits. 
in Matthew 12:45 says that seven other devils will enter a, a vacant heart. Someone who had a demon taken care of, seven more will come in if you don't fill it again with the Holy Spirit. Again, speaking of that completeness, the, the fullness of it. On the positive side, there's... Uh, we're going to read in Revelation these seven spirits of God. That's in chapter three. We'll speak about that. In the, in the seventh year, the Hebrew slave was to be freed. We read about that in Exodus. Again, in, uh, the seventh year, the Levitical year, 40 years. But there was also a sabbatical year every seven year. Not the year, uh, not the fullness of that other, but there was a particular year, a sabbatical year, a seventh year. Uh, seven times seven reiterates that sense of completeness. Uh, again, that year of Jubilee was seven times seven, the 50th, which is 49, but the 50th year was the year of Jubilee. Uh, Pentecost, the, the Feast of Weeks, is seven times seven days after Passover, 50 days, the 49th and the 50th day. Um, again, Pentecost itself. Uh, the feast there. Then there's 70, which is literally, uh, sevens in the Hebrew, and it has the idea of 70 elders. The, uh, Israel was exiled to Babylon for 70 years. We see this all the way through scripture, Old Testament and New. And so, is there a reason why seven churches? Because if you look at a map, there's a lot of little cities all in that area. There's much more than seven. So why is there just seven? Or is it, again, symbolic of the fact of the completeness of the message that God was sharing with them? So these are going to be some of the things that you'll need to battle with. We'll battle a little bit with them of what exactly does he mean on that. When we look at the seven churches, there are also some that say, well, these churches, though, yes, there were seven cities with seven churches historically. Actually, what they're speaking about is seven church ages that are going along. And they've actually broken down even time frames of church ages where the church of Ephesus was, again, that first century church and then it moved on from there and moved on from there and moved on from there. I saw one chart that even said that the, uh, the last church, the Laodicean church, that church age actually began in 1925. And I don't know where they get those particular dates from, but they say that each one is a particular era of the church and even how the church was governed or ruled in different events that taken place from the dark ages to the reformation period to the modern period. So all of those things. But more than anything else, I want us to look at each one of these seven churches, the issues that were going on with each one of these seven churches and realize that any and every one of those issues can happen to any and every church at any time, that any church can come to the point of losing their first love. And suddenly they get busy about doing a whole lot of other things than just seeking after Jesus. There's any time that suddenly we can get so caught up in hierarchy and and structure that suddenly we lose the Spirit of God. There's any time that we can become lukewarm and not passionate for the things of Christ. I think that any church at any time could go through the issues of any of these seven churches. And I'm going to bring it one deeper. I believe that we as individuals just as individuals within the body can have the same things going on in our lives. Open our hearts, change us from within. 
We've come to the end of our time together for today. But if you're not ready to be done yet, you can find additional messages from The Open Word. Pastor David is here to share how you can continue listening. Hey, thanks, Chris. We love getting the Word of God out to as many people as possible. All the teachings you hear on The Open Word have been preserved on our website. You're welcome to access them. Visit theopenword.com to listen to or download the messages God has supplied from His Word. That website again is theopenword.com or you can search for The Open Word Podcast on iTunes and subscribe for free. I'd like to encourage you to take these messages with you on the go. You never know when you'll have a moment of peace in your day. So why not fill it with God's Word? I hope you continue to study the Bible and that it continues to bless you and fill you with His joy. Thanks, Pastor David. We're so glad these resources are available to us whenever we want them. The book of Revelation is so often shrouded in mystery with its outlandish pictures of winged creatures by the throne of God and roaming the earth. As we continue to study, though, we'll be able to discern how these pictures all point to the one spotless lamb who conquered all through laying down his life. If you'd like to know more about Jesus, the lamb, give us a call at 520-836-9676. That's 520-836-9676. We'd love to share the greatest story with you, the one where God came down to earth to join in a relationship with us. That's all for today, but join us next time right here on The Open Word.